anyone get faith? Where does faith come from? What is faith? Scripture tells us that faith itself is a gift of God. If salvation is about us, it is not a gift. It is a result of work. If God sovereign and sovereignly called me, then He has sealed me. Welcome to the teaching ministry of Heritage Baptist Church in Ashland, Ohio. Each week, we bring you expository and practical teaching straight from God's Word. And now, here's Pastor Ben. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn back to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, after a couple-week absence with Jared and I both talking about the concept of letting your yes be your yes and your no be your no and the honoring of words and oaths. We're going to dive back into one verse in Ephesians 4, 4.15, where Paul commands us to speak the truth in love. And there's a lot to cover this morning. This is a highly practical sermon. I was sharing with Andy a couple days ago. I'm very excited to share this with you. Um, I hope that there's a correlation between how much fun I had preparing this message and the actual delivery of the message. I think it's one of those that potentially leads to some good and juicy discussion. So if you have your scriptures with you, look at what Paul says in his chapter about walking in unity, chapter 4. In verse 15, Paul says, but... Speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you would give us an opportunity to extol the virtues of your scripture, to treat it as a holy and sovereignly crafted work that is without error, without contradiction, that was inspired by your spirit. This is the document that you wanted us to have, to know your character, to know your precepts, and Lord, to know your wishes for us. So I pray that we would treat it accordingly and that you would remove from me any agenda contrary to that which you would have spoken. Lord, allow us to hear from you today by the blessing of the Spirit and by the power of the name of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Normally, I have a witty and fun introduction. We have no time for that today, so let us dive right in. If we look at the original language in chapter 4, verse 15, there's not much in the way of various English translation that I came across, but let me ask all of you, because usually we have five to ten various English translations represented. Does anybody here have anything different than this phrase, speaking the truth in love? Does anyone have any variation to speaking the truth in love? In love. I did not discover you. You got one, Austin? I was living the truth in love. Really? Yeah. What is that translation? Um, it, is, it says New American. That's the NASB? I don't think this is NASB. Yeah, I don't think it is either. Yeah. That, I, I, would, I would humbly but confidently say that's, that's not a strong translation. The word is, and, it, and it's crucial that it is speaking. It is crucial. Now, You'll see in a minute, I think you'll understand by the end of today's sermon why Austin's translation says living, but that's not an accurate translation into this language. So uh, turn that in before service. Okay. Um, 
So let's look at the Greek here. The Greek is, for, for the phrase, speaking the truth is just one Greek word, uh, aletheo. Aletheo is a word that is very unique because it only occurs one other time in the whole of Scripture, also used by Paul. And here's the other place that we see it. In Galatians 4.16, he writes, Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? So you can see that aletheo, because I tell you the truth, the understanding of in love is just built into that. It wasn't explicitly stated as it is translated here in our passage in Ephesians. So while this word only occurs twice in all of Scripture, here's something notable about the word itself. This word does occur several times in the writings of contemporary philosophers like Plato and Aristotle. And remember, Paul is writing to a predominantly Greek audience at Ephesus who have recently become believers in Christ. So while the word itself is somewhat unique to the Bible, it would have been a word and a concept that through secular knowledge and awareness would have absolutely been familiar to the readers of Paul's letter. Now, I don't want to take much of a sidetrack here, but I certainly think that there is something I want to press into before we continue. And that's going to take the form of three questions. Here's the first one. What does it suggest that Paul was both aware of and used contemporary concepts and language to speak and teach to the culture of Ephesus? What does that suggest? What lesson might be born in that? Not all at once. Katie? Um, that he was, one, I mean, adapting to the culture to meet, to meet them where they are. Sure, sure. Absolutely adapting to the culture. And we see other examples of Paul doing this, probably most famously when he speaks at the Areopagus on Mars Hill. He doesn't appeal to the Old Testament because he's speaking to Stoic Greek philosophers, so he appeals to their shrine to the unknown God. He builds on his understanding of the culture to draw them to a connection with Christ. Good. Anything else that it suggests that Paul was both aware of and used contemporary concepts of the culture of Ephesus to make his point? Jared? Uh, this is building on what Katie said, but it seems like uh, the point is that he doesn't shy away from being able to take the secular culture and merge it with the Christian so that he's able to, like you said, it's reaching people, but it also shows that Christianity speaks to every situation and every person. So it's universal. Boy, that's, that's big. He doesn't shy away from the use of secular means in order to draw connections with ultimate truth. Now, do we do that? When I say we, I mean... Western Christians as a whole, I mean our church, I mean us individually or in our families, what are ways in which we use the secular culture to connect with people with the ultimate goal of Christ? Shauna? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Very, very, very few scholars believe that Jesus was born on the date of December 25th. He was born around that time, probably within two weeks either way, but it became convenient to merge it 
uh, with the pagan holidays of the day and basically take it over as a Christian holiday. Brian. I was thinking, you brought the class of Jesus in the Matrix, using the secular world, the, the movies, the, the songs, the, the stories that the secular world puts mm-hmm. out there and saying, hey, there's, there are pieces of this that you can connect to Christianity, that you can connect to God. These ideals that you hold so highly aren't foreign to what we believe. Yeah, I, I, I think, yeah, you're on to something. I'm actually going to build into that a little bit here. So my second question is, would it be a benefit for evangelism and discipleship to at least be aware of what's going on in the world around us and even use those concepts to connect with the truth of Scripture? So what are the categories of knowing what's going on in the world around us? Would you say in our country, certainly politics? I mean, I'm not even saying what side you fall on or where you take us, just, just that you're aware of a basic awareness of what's going on in politics. What about music? The arts, film, television, social media. I mean, these are influencing factors, correct? So to have an awareness, and I'm not telling you that all of you need to go out and, you know, revamp your Instagram account. I'm not saying that. I'm saying to have a functional awareness of these things is crucial. Last question, how do we actually do that? And let me, let me say what I'm actually asking here. I'm not just asking how do we do it. I'm asking how do we do it responsibly as Christians. Any thoughts on this? Katie? I think when you listen to people and what they're you know, talking about. Huge. Huge. And not just automatically putting up a wall and saying you're not right. Mm-hmm. You know, I think just listening to people of what they want to talk about and then sometimes you have to learn more about what they're talking about just to engage with them. Yeah, without question, without question. Any other thoughts on that, Jamie? I was going to say, like, in regards to the social media, if there's a counter thought against what it is that you're speaking of, taking that conversation off of the social media and yeah. using it as an opportunity to have a cup of coffee yeah. or, like Katie was saying, it opens doors of opportunity to discuss with them and maybe you have to learn a little more about what it is their position-wise, but it, there's just a lot of benefit out there. If any of you guys wrestle with how do I take the things that I'm into or enjoy, or maybe a similar question, I feel kind of guilty that I enjoy some of the things. I don't think they're sin. I just really enjoy them, and I don't know if that's honoring to God. How do I do that? I'm going to tell you guys, you guys have a great blessing in your pastor because this is my passion. My passion, if I were to summarize it in a sentence, is the connection of pop culture to the ultimate truth of scripture. That's, that's, that's my wheelhouse. That's what I love to teach on. In fact, right now, I'm teaching this book, uh, The Message Behind the Movie at Genesis. It's a book by Doug Beaumont. Doug Beaumont is a Southern Seminary grad. He pastors a church in North Carolina. And I love this book. When I read this book five years ago, I was so furious that he wrote it before I did. And, and the reason he wrote it before I did was because he's more disciplined than me and he actually got the, because a lot of the concepts he hashes out are brilliant. And he is, he says he's not a cinephile. He absolutely is a cinephile or a movie nerd, much like me. So this book, while it applies predominantly to movies, the truths from it, the way to look at something that is secular art and connect it with good theology can be applied to social media. It can be applied to books. It can be applied to The Matrix or The Godfather in the same way that you could apply it to Snapchat or Instagram um, or Michael Jackson, to, to name a few things. I highly, highly recommend this book, but here's one problem with it. It is darn near impossible to find because it's out of print now. 
Uh, they, uh, how, I mean, some kids in our class, we have 12 kids in our class, some kids paid 30 bucks for it. It's like a $12.99 book. I do own two copies of it, and I'll be happy to lend, well, let me be very clear. I bought two copies of it. One of them was commandeered by my daughter, but uh, I would be happy to lend either of those out later this spring when we're done reading it and studying it. It's a phenomenal book, and if you can find it, Anywhere online, used, you probably won't find it new for less than $15. And if you are interested in any of these questions that we're discussing, please pounce on this. The, one of the main things that, that Beaumont points out in the first chapter of his book is he talks about the difference between two groups of Christians, cave-dwelling Christians and Teflon Christians. Cave-dwelling Christians say the movies are evil, they're all, they're all evil, and they avoid them like the plague. And that creates a certain weakness for evangelism, the inability to relate, the inability to find truth in secular thought, the inability to have discussions with people around the water cooler about the latest thing. Teflon Christians, on the other hand, are Christians that watch everything and anything and just say, oh, it's fine, I'll, you know, I'm a strong Christian. And we need to strike a balance between being a cave-dwelling Christian and a Teflon Christian, to be able to have ways to judge what is worth engaging. When Paul says, all things are beneficial for me, but not all things are permissible, all things are subject to me, but I will not become a slave to any, then we need to wrestle with that question of how do we engage with these things. Obviously, the passion that I'm speaking with, this is what I love to discuss. So if any of you have questions about that, please, please, please don't hesitate to give me a call. One more quick side note, 30 seconds here, and then we'll get back into our passage. In taking a road trip earlier this week or late last week with Andy, I asked him, I said, talk to me flatly, and Andy's been one of my best friends for 20 years, and he's the deacon of our church, and I said, tell me where I'm falling short as a pastor. Be critical with me. And this is going to relate to what we're going to talk about in a few minutes with this passage. But he said, you're really busy. And sometimes the fact that you are really busy keeps people from reaching out to you. So I want to dispel something publicly. I am busy. I do have three jobs. I have two very high-maintenance kids and an incredibly high-maintenance wife. Um, <laughs> if you ask the three of them, they will say, not true. We have a very high-maintenance father. Um, but I will tell you this, I am busy. I, I'm not going to deny that I'm not gonna paint it the way it's not. I am also incredibly flexible. The three jobs that I work, I set my hours. And this church and this ministry, and by proxy, all 50 of you are the primary reason I live in Ashland, Ohio. Being able to minister to people through hospice is a bonus and a blessing, it is not the reason I am here. Being able to teach wonderful students such as Josh and Sam and hopefully Lucy next year, because three and they get a discount, uh, and, and Vea, that is a bonus and it is a pleasure. It is not the reason I'm in Ashland. If you knew how much I made at Genesis, you would know why it's not the reason I'm here in Ashland. I'm here for you because you are my passion. So please don't ever hesitate to send me a text or to pick up the phone or to send a fax or to use smoke signals to reach out to me and stop because, well, Pastor Ben's really busy. If you do that, I have failed you. Do not let the enemy get in your head and create a reality where I don't have time for you. I have time for you. It might have to be scheduled, and I may have to move a couple things around, but that's what I love to do. So please, please, please know that I never want the bottleneck of this church to be that we're not growing because you don't feel you have the connection with me that you should. 
Remember like two hours ago when I said I was gonna take 30 seconds on that? Okay, let's move on. Here's the crux of what we're unpacking in the scriptures today. To speak the truth in love. What does this actually mean? What is its application? Where are the places where we fall short with this? We know that at least Plato and Aristotle were familiar with this concept and they stressed it as important. So it touches something in the heart of the human condition. And we have even many times over modernized the language of this concept of speaking the truth in love. And some sayings come to mind which are absolutely reflective of Paul telling us to speak the truth in love. One of the common ones that you've heard me share before is this simple truth that people will not care what you know until they know that you care. And if we cannot build relationships with people, they're not going to be particularly interested in what it is we have to say. Uh, you've heard me say that you will not actually grow until your desire to learn outweighs your desire to win. We have a lot of people that like and are good at winning arguments, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're growing or learning. So we need to set ourselves aside. The third reflection that I thought of in preparation is this one. The sermon that you live is louder than the sermon that you speak. The sermon that you live is louder than the sermon that you speak. So if there's an inconsistency between what you claim you believe or what your church believes and how you behave outside of that church, or heaven forbid, how you behave inside of that church, people are going to pick up on that. Uh, Non-Christians are going to say hypocrite, and Christians as a whole are hypocritical, and Christians are going to say backslidden and living in sin. So we see here that Paul says there are two ingredients, two crucial ingredients to make this actually work. Paul says that one of those ingredients is the data, the information, and we will call that the truth. Now, for the purpose of our discussion, we need to define truth. It is true that the Cleveland Browns are the greatest football team in the NFL, amen? Regardless of who's playing today, it is true. Okay, now, as much as it pains me to say that is a subjective truth, it is not true in terms of it being true for all people, all times, all things. By contrast, in, a, in, in deference to the statement about the Browns, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, amen? That is true whether or not you believe it. That is true whether or not Hitler believed it. That is true whether or not Donald Trump believes it or Joe Biden believes it or Muammar Gaddafi believes it. That is true because it is true. It is true for all people, all time, in all ways. So when we talk about truth, the data, the truth is the first ingredient and it must be that big T, capital T, truth. Sometimes we call this universal truth or big T truth because there is little T truth. And little T truth is what is true to me. So what is true to me is I can't imagine loving a football team more than the Browns. That is true for me, but it's not true for Jared. It's not true for Rhonda. Um, it's not even true for Mark, who for some reason loves the Texans. God bless you. Um, I've just ruined Sunday. Now, the first ingredient is the data, the truth. The second ingredient, love, that's all about us. It's about our delivery of the message. It's how we convey this truth. It is how we act. It is how we treat people. It's the respect and the care that we show to the recipient of this data. It is absolutely just as crucial as what it is we are actually sharing with them. And both have to be accurate. We have to absolutely have the right data and convey it the right way. So two questions for us. 
What happens, let's talk about this one first. There's two questions on that, on that bullet point. Let's deal with this one. What happens if we speak the truth but not in love? What happens if we do that? Let me be more specific. What might happen if we speak the truth in love to a non-believer? To a non-believer. We speak the truth, but not in love. We tell them the right data, but we do not treat them the right way as we do it. What happens? Mark? We still lose them. Yeah, yeah. They, they are not interested in whatever it is we are selling or believing, right? So we've lost the audience, so we have the right information, but it doesn't matter because we can't share it with anyone because they alienate us, and rightfully so. What happens if we speak in love, but we leave out the data? It's meaningless, right? Yeah, we are gathering the masses and everybody loves us and we're not helping them. Penn Jillette of Penn and Teller, a noted atheist, he says this about Christians and I think it's fascinating. He says, how much do you have to hate me to not share the gospel with me? If you believe there's an eternal hell and an eternal paradise and you do not tell me that information for any reason, including that you don't want to offend me, then you must hate me something fierce. And that's an atheist saying that. And yet Christians stumble and stall and slow out all the time. We have this life-saving piece of information that was given to us as a gift. It was nothing that we earned. It was nothing that we cultivated. It was given to us. And then we were commanded, give that information in love to others. And we often pause in our culture because we don't want to offend someone. It's absurd. It is maddening that that is what happens to us. So the conclusion that we reach rather quickly is that both aspects are absolutely necessary to be obedient to Scripture, to following the teaching of Paul, and to follow the example of Christ. There must be the right information presented in a way that gives the person a chance to be endeared to us. Another way that we might phrase it or might say it is, people may hate the message that we bear. It's our job to make it very difficult for them to not like us. Josh. I think the notes in this is kind of interesting. It says, the truth must not be used as a club to bludgeon people into acceptance and obedience, but must be always presented in love. The truth leads the Christian to maturity, which is defined here as growing into Christ. As head, Christ leads and directs and guides the body. Excellent. Yeah, incredibly well said. Let's talk about that concept of bludgeoning for a moment as we close. I want to just close with this reflective thought. Paul tells us in the second half of verse 15 why we speak the truth in love. He says, so that we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. In other words, so that we would become more Christ-like, so that we would become more like the one who died for us. So we understand that Christ is the example of excellence that we find ourselves striving for, And part of our measurable maturity of our walk over the years is being able to ask ourselves a few difficult but simple questions. We ought to be able to look in the mirror and answer the question, am I more Christ-like than I was five years ago? Am I more Christ-like than I was 10 years ago? Now, in these examples, I'm assuming that it hasn't been within that time period that you became a Christian. 
But certainly, if you go back beyond that, I should be able to say, having become a believer at 19, I should absolutely be able to say I'm more of a Christian than I was when I was 18, and I'm more of a Christian than I was when I was 25 or 35. I'm going to stop there so I don't embarrass myself. But it's an absolute necessity that we know that we are growing in maturity in terms of Christ-like. So let me close with this pastoral note here. It is essential, it is absolutely essential that we go out and speak the truth in love both to believers and to non-believers in our life. Sometimes we think of this and we think just in terms of evangelism. It's not. It's just as crucial that if I am correcting Andy or Andy is correcting me, the two components exist. The truth and in love. And I would say more often than not, it is within the church between two parties of Christians that that issue of love is assumed and not practiced. You want to know my evidence for that? It's 25 years of being a hospice chaplain and hearing people tell me, well, I used to go to that church, but they did me wrong. And that fracture has lasted for decades because somebody also identifying as a Christian offended them and it broke them away from any type of fellowship in the church. I would add to that that the importance of surrounding ourselves with other believers that will speak the truth in love to us is crucial. We need correction. We need the truth. And we need that to be delivered in grace, in love. Now, there is such a thing within the church that I would label as toxic truth, where we tell ourselves and then we tell others, just give me the truth, hold me accountable, don't sugarcoat it, don't worry about my feelings. And I tend to lean towards that. I tend to say, speak flatly, speak plainly, say your piece. I'm a big boy, I can take it. And to a degree, that's true. To a degree, I'm mature enough to be able to separate the criticism or the accusation or the observance from how it makes me feel. But I'm lying to you if I tell you I don't have feelings. I'm lying to you if I tell you if that's all that I get, if I don't receive grace. Parents, we need to receive grace from our children, amen? Because things that they didn't do will make us yell at them, amen? I mean, that's, that's the truth. We need to be apologizing and humbling ourselves before our kids. We absolutely do. I grew up in a household where I went years, I mean, five, six, seven years between hearing my father say the words, I'm sorry. So one of two things was true. Either he never did anything worth apologizing for, or he never thought he owed me that, that, that basic human decency. So sometimes we act tough because we think a mature Christian doesn't need it to be, we think that love equates sugarcoating. Love is not sugarcoating. Love is the person knowing your motivation when they sit down with you to tell you what's going on. The problem with that, the problem with toxic truth within a church is that it often leads to legalism, harsh correction. And then we find ourselves falling in line, not out of a love of wanting to become more Christ-like, but rather out of a fear of suffering judgment from the Christians to our left and to our right. May that never, ever, ever be the case at Heritage. May we be a church that knows how and understands the importance of speaking the truth in love. Thanks for listening to this message from Pastor Ben Roby and Heritage Baptist Church. We welcome your feedback or questions. You can find us online at hbcashland.com or connect with us on Facebook. If you found this message helpful, please share it with a friend or loved one. 
again. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next week.